0: I mean, I consider myself a, an experimental archaeologist and a master naturalist. For the uh, East Texas chapter of the Master Naturalists, I teach the archaeology portion of their program, and it includes uh, all of a lot of the stuff that I showed you today. I show them um, just to give them an idea of what, you know, people did as the real naturalist, you know, I mean, the, the original naturalist, I should say.
1: That's Neil Stilley, friction fire starter, atlatl thrower, tool maker, Vietnam vet, and student of nature. Neil loves to share his incredibly extensive knowledge of primitive technologies to bring a connective tissue to how people lived in a simpler time. He brought his collection of handmade tools and scat display boxes over to my house to bring life to his stories, which he uses in his outreach classes. If you catch him at any of his East Texas courses this spring, kick off your shoes and get ready to touch some bones. I'm Angelica Norton. Stay tuned for my monthly chat. Hi, Neil.
0: Hi, Angelica.
1: Thanks for joining me on Chatty Crafties, a show where I celebrate my creative friends to get inspired by everyday art. I've known you my entire life since you were a friend of my parents, and I'm assuming y'all met at Peaceable Kingdom?
0: Yes, yes, it was at Peaceable Kingdom where I met your mom.
1: Yeah, in the late 70s or something?
0: It was uh, 1976.
1: Okay um i've known you as my parents friend a primitive guide of sorts on our camping trips i thought it would be interesting to get to know you as a colleague and understand your creative side since it's different than the cultural norm of what creative means Before we get into that, uh, I wanted to start with a weekly inspiration. My inspiration this week was going to QuiltCon, which is a quilting convention. And I went with uh, my sewing buddy, Sarah, who I've had an interview with on the podcast. And there were so many different types of quilts there that they weren't just a shape repeated. It was like painting with fabric. Mm -hmm. And I was so inspired by it that I went home and kept working on the quilt blocking that I showed you earlier with the paper piecing um and so it just really got me fired up about just doing more uh sewing and and just looking at it in a different way is there anything this week that is kind of firing you up or inspiring you
0: well coming out here and talking with you Mm. has inspired me um I haven't done much in in the way of uh primitive technology uh uh teachings and stuff lately, but this is kind of a uh, moment to get back into that and talk about it and share it with other people. And so I'm really excited about that.
1: Oh, fun. I'm so glad. When did you get interested in (sighs) archaeology?
0: Boy, as a kid, we used to find projectile points in our backyard, and I kind of dug in the backyard to see if I could find more. Of course, I didn't find anything but I did find a couple and so that uh, just kind of got me interested in it and then later on um, I read National Geographic's and they had uh, a primitive man in there and that just got me interested and then as I got older I started studying um, primitive technology and just uh, read books and went to uh, primitive technology gatherings and um, Learned a lot of stuff like that and found out there were a lot of other people like myself out there. And so it just kind of just continued on and on and on. And as a river guide, a lot of times we uh, would pass places that were archaeological sites. And so I got to know the sites through the uh, literature that I studied about the places in Big Bend where I river guided. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: um, it just started snowballing from there you know it just is it's always something that's been interested in to me and even though I've done a lot of other things I've always come back to the archaeology because it's just something that's uh sacred to my heart
1: Mm -hmm. did you go on a camping trip with my mom and brother I want to say in the 90s to go on the Pecos River and look at um yes yes
0: I did yes I did I took your mom and uh Floyd out uh, on the Pecos River with my friend Gerald Hunter and um, we went out there and spent uh, I think it was seven days out Mm -hmm. on the river and um, I had gone down the Pecos River once before with uh, my friend Gerald and um, I just happened to just come across a lot of rock art uh, sites and stuff not knowing where they were Mm. but just having a gut feeling and having Myself being in touch with the, uh, I guess the spirits that are out there, and the uh, Lower Pecos is full of spirits. It's really a, a, to me, it's kind of a sacred place.
1: What is the creative overlap between archaeology and what you do?
0: Well, what I do is basically part of anthropology and part of uh, archaeology. Anthropology is the study of cultures. And archaeology is the study of the materials that the culture makes. Mm -hmm. And so um, what I do is I take that archaeology and that anthropology and make um, uh, tools and show people how the people, uh, the prehistoric people before 1500, as we talked earlier about, Mm -hmm. um, the pre-contact people, how they lived and uh, how they were able to live off the land and know the plants and the animals and everything. You talk about people being master naturalists. Well, those people were super naturalists. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Because that was their life. I mean, their life was the world that they lived in, and so they uh, uh, were very uh, perceptive to what was going on in the world, in their immediate world, not the bigger mm-hmm. world, but just their immediate world. Right. And so um, a lot of times that kind of shaped what people did, the materials that they had. Uh, Some people had uh, uh, stone materials, some people didn't have it, so they used bone in place of stone material, uh, like we looked at earlier and at at some of the uh, bone tools. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, they uh, used a lot of the uh, technologies that they came up with. I mean, I don't know how they came up with them, but they just seemed to have a, a different sense of being uh-huh. and, um, you know, were more perceptionate to the world and the materials that they had. Because like nowadays, we go to different stores and we have all this propaganda that we get hit with. Well, in those times, they didn't have that stuff. They had to rely on the natural world that they lived in to, uh, to live, not survive. People say, oh, they survived. No, they lived pretty well because um, when the Europeans came to North America, um, the North American continent was full of Native American people. It was just lots of them everywhere. And if they were just surviving, there wouldn't have been so many people out there. Huh. Um, you That's know, they point. were they were living uh, pretty good. Um, the Lower Pecos people... Uh, probably had it pretty good uh, because there was lots of plants out there that they could utilize Um, they had to do special things to them like build earth ovens to make the lechuguia and sotol uh, edible but that was part of their uh, existence You know, Mm -hmm. they just had a natural feel for uh, certain things and I don't know how they figured out how to cook lechuguia or sotol but they did, and they used it for quite a long period of time, about 3,000 years. They huh. were out there using these plants and stuff, and that's a long time. You know, our society has only been here for, in North America for, oh, I guess a little more than 500 years. Okay. I think, if I got yeah. my math right.
1: <laughs> oh, man, so for 3,000 years, they were living that same way.
0: Yeah, huh. yeah.
1: And for our listeners, um, Neil and I got out a bunch of tools that he brought and examples of materials, and I took a bunch of pictures so I can put them on the blog post at chattycrafties.com and on the Instagram page so that you can kind of picture these these things that we're talking about. What made you want to create primitive tools?
0: Well... I like sharing with people, and I've learned a lot of things over the years. I've been doing primitive technology for about 35 years or so. And um, I found that, you know, people are interested in prehistoric people. And since I've had the opportunity to work with a number of different people, uh, some of them have passed on, you know, now I have the... uh, I wouldn't say it was the burden but I have the pleasure of carrying on that Mm -hmm. knowledge and sharing with other people what I know and I think that's important that we understand where we've come from and hopefully we get a better idea where we're headed Um, you know in in ways of understanding the natural world and how it functions and uh, what you can utilize out of the the wilderness or the the desert as it may be with the lower pecos people
1: yeah like for landscape designs we encourage users homeowners to like go out and sit and listen and and enjoy like a very cultivated experience
0: right i mean people like landscaping because they like plants Mm -hmm. and we're all connected to plants no matter what you think even in an office we have office plants right You know, so we bring the outdoors in and um, as a landscaper, uh, you get the opportunity to plant things that help people understand or feel, uh, not understand, but feel the natural world. Right. They feel an Uh ambiance of nature that is out there and it just brings them closer to that world. And if you took all the way the plants and just had concrete, people would be really uptight but plants and nature help us become more at peace with ourselves I think at least that's the way with me right you know
1: and you brought in some recordings. So we're listening right now to frogs and crickets.
0: And toads. And
1: toads. Um, tell me about what we're listening to.
0: Okay. Um, I worked with the uh, Houston Independent School District's Outdoor Education Center at uh, Camp Cullen in Trinity, Texas. And um, at that particular site, there was lots of uh, um, ponds and places that would be considered like wetlands Mm -hmm. and during the spring when the rains would come these places would fill up and the frogs and toads and crickets would all be out there uh, doing their thing and it just it's a soundscape it's what I've done is recorded these moments of these particular uh, creatures singing their songs and singing about life and talking to themselves and just you know, living the, the world that they live in. And I think that uh, for myself anyway, listening to those things are kind of brings you to a peace of mind, you know, it's just very relaxing and, and soothing. And um, I recorded those uh, for that purpose. Uh, originally, I just thought, well, gosh, this is pretty neat stuff, I'll record <laughs> it. And now that was back in the uh, 80s and 90s when I recorded Uh, these things and I've recorded them on uh, um,
1: cassettes and now I
0: turned them into mp3s and now I've made a a cd which we're listening to
1: yes and a a cd that I had to look for a cd player (laughs) to be able to play (laughs) so quickly they become obsolete Um, but it's great that you're able to keep finding a way to keep listening to this recording from, what did you say, 80s? 80s and 90s. Yeah, that's nuts. It's white noise before there were apps for that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Highly coveted. Yeah. We looked at a lot of really interesting fire-starting materials in the boxes. What can you tell me about the Shumla Notch
0: Project? Ah, okay, the Shumla Notch. Yeah, yeah. that's that's something that I rediscovered. I didn't discover it because the Lower Pecos people did. I just rediscovered how they were making their friction fire. And what they did was they had a a way of doing friction fire using a fireboard that everybody uses, but their fireboard was different. Um, Most people in North America had uh, a notch on the side and they could get uh, two or three embers out of that notch. Well, the Lower Pecos people were very innovative and they um, drilled a hole into the uh, fireboard and then they cut a notch, which I call the shumla notch, right into the bottom of the, the hole or the socket. And then they drilled down and an ember would form and they would get one ember per socket. But that socket and that notch make it so that when the wind blows, it doesn't blow the uh, ember away. And that's something that a friend of mine and I discovered when we were out in the open uh, doing friction fire starting for a um, place that I do some work at, at Caddo Mound State Historical Site. And um, it just was amazing how innovative this notch is, just when the wind's blowing. And out there in the lower Pecos, there's lots of wind out there. Um, it's a pretty windy place.
1: So were you showing these friction fires um, when the tornado hit last year? Yes, I was. Okay, so you were saying it's April 13th, 2019.
0: At 1 p.m. At
1: 1 p.m., um, a tornado hit Cattleman's, Texas. Well, it
0: dropped on top of us. Okay. The tornado just came out of the sky and dropped down right on top of us. Yeah. And um, it was... It was pretty scary um yeah. i had an oh shit moment yeah. um, as i looked up and saw the buildings start to fall apart and debris flying all over the place and uh kind of got knocked out for a while and the next thing i remember is i was uh helping other people who were injured more than i was i had a gash in the side of my head but i guess it didn't stop me i just was kind of dazed a little bit
1: your medic training oh yes
0: medic mode
1: (laughs) yeah because you were um in army army okay so in the army you were a medic yes and um were in vietnam when did you get out of the army
0: that was in 1971
1: it was just kind of training from then that you've just kind of carried on
0: well I, i went into the national guard uh, reserves oh. for a while. And no, no. Uh, I was in there for, I guess, six or seven years. Uh, six years was the extended uh, time that you served, and then you could re enlist. And I think I re enlisted for one more year and got out after a, I was involved in a bad helicopter crash mm-hmm. at Fort Hood.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that kind of took the air out of my sails.
1: Right. Okay, so we're talking about the Shumla Notch at Caddo Mounds, and so the Shumla Notch and all of this, the the stuff that you showed, it's kind of like this outreach program you do through the um... Texas
0: Historical Commission. Yeah, I'm a, a volunteer archaeology uh, steward for the Texas Historical Commission, and what I do for them is I go out and I do outreach educational programs. Um, similar to what we were doing this afternoon, looking at all the tools and, and, um, scat samples that I have and stuff, uh, of that nature, um, and talk to people about how these things were used and, uh, how they, uh, made them, and I've made, uh, the majority of the tools that I have, I have a few things that I didn't, um, make myself but Mm -hmm. I had other people do that so I could have examples of the uh, types of tools that I just couldn't make because I don't have the the flint napping skills that I'd like to I did some flint napping but I'm not much of a flint napper I'm more of a friction fire starter and atlatl and rabbit sticks
1: yeah so you made the atlatls too I remember you came and taught uh, a class at Kincaid when my mom was the art teacher there and it was at so you I don't know if you were teaching us to throw atlatl yes
0: I was teaching uh people how to throw the atlatl and and just teaching them about what the atlatl is all about because uh-huh. most people don't know about the atlatl um and the reason is because when the uh uh, Europeans came to North America. What they saw was most people, native people that were here, using the bow and arrow. Right. So that got written down. But the Atlatl had kind of gone out of it, phased out. Oh, about a 500, maybe a thousand years before the bow and arrow. Oh, uh, okay. And so. Uh, by the time the Europeans came, everybody was using the uh, the bow and arrow with the exception of the uh, Aztecs who used the atlatl. And that's where we get the word for spear thrower is atlatl. It's A-T-L-A-T-L. And it's an Aztec word meaning spear thrower. Huh. And they were using uh, atlatls. They didn't have the bow and arrow down there, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. <laughs> when everybody north of them were using bows and arrows they had armies that were using the atlatl and they were pretty uh, aggressive people with the atlatl. They uh, had uh, obsidian points, which is a volcanic glass material and um, powered by an atlatl. Uh, That would bring a big deal of hurt on somebody getting hit by one of those.
1: And can you describe what the atlatl looks like?
0: Well, the atlatl is like an extension of your arm. Okay and it is a uh, generally a flat piece of wood with a hook on one end and that's mm-hmm. where the uh, end of the dart fits and mm-hmm. the dart is what is being thrown the atlatl dart and it has a um, um, a depression in the end of it that fits into the hook mm-hmm. and then it extends along the, uh, the ladle, which is probably about the length of your arm if you put it underneath your armpit and then extended it out okay and um, then you arch back and then you throw it and pop your wrist Mm -hmm. and it gives you uh, 200 to 250 times greater impact power than a handheld spear that's thrown so that's pretty significant
1: you know what this reminds me of Uh, a dog throwing toy where you put the tennis ball oh, at yes. the end and you yes. kind of fling it out the end. Yes. A modern atlatl. Yeah,
0: and lacrosse is similar to that. Oh. They put a ball and they have a long uh-huh. stick and they put a ball and they sling it with two hands. And mm-hmm. they uh, originally the um, uh, lacrosse uh, came about by people wanting to uh, uh, attack other people and so they would put stones, and they would heave the stones with the uh, what we call the lacrosse stick, and they would heave the stones at the other people at a great distance. And so this way it became a weapon, but then it became a game um, that the Native Americans played. What? You know.
1: That's the origin of lacrosse?
0: I believe so. That's bananas.
1: I never knew that you use plants for edible and medicinal purposes um there's some creativity for knowing how to id and use raw material how can animal scat play a part in plant id
0: well animals like to eat fruit and the fruits and seeds uh are all together, and when the animal digests, what comes out is uh, what we call scat. Um, And in the scat, the seeds haven't been digested. So you can look at the scat. uh, Take, for instance, the persimmon. It only uh, bears fruit in the fall. And so if you find a coyote scat sample and it has uh, persimmon seeds in it, you know that the persimmons are ripe and that you better go get them before the animals get them all. Oh, sure. And then it helps you identify what kind of plants are in the area. If you were new mm-hmm. to the area and you knew the seeds well enough, which I think people did in the past, uh, like I've learned, and it just becomes a, um, a kind of a seek and find. You seek out different things, you run across a trail, there's some scat. Coyotes like to uh do their pooping in a certain place and so if you wanted to really understand the environment you could go look at their scat and the places at different seasons during the summer you'd find grasshoppers and insects in their scat um in the fall it would be in certain areas where persimmons grow it would be persimmon seeds um and um In the winter, there is no seeds, there's just bones. So if you found some scat that had just bones, you knew it was winter scat. And if it had insect parts in it, you know it's summer scat. And if it has uh, certain plants that uh, produce seeds in the uh, spring, that would be spring scat. So you can go all through the seasons by looking at the scat seeds, and interpret your environment that way. It's a real creative way of doing it. But uh, yeah. I think it's what people in the past did. I mean, it just makes sense to me that that's what they would do. And it just shows the diversity that these animals have. And I mean, I think that's one thing that as a, a naturalist, you know, you can tell the diversity in certain animals by looking at their scab because they, they eat what is provided for them you know they don't grow crops or anything like that and so they just go after what is available and that way you can interpret the scat in that in that manner
1: i thought it was so interesting how you have made these boxes the displays the display boxes of scats uh showing how if you kind of dissect what's in there You know, you can find all of these bones, like pretty well preserved. I mean, there were teeth in some of the rodent bones. Oh yeah. And um, they have little notes in there, so kids can, adults too, can learn what is uh, in the scat. And I don't know. I just thought it's like a time picture.
0: It's a picture of of an event that took place mm-hmm. that I've been able to capture in a box yeah. and show it to other people so that they can learn how to interpret the, uh, the outdoors uh, as it may be and um, I think that's really neat because the more you understand about the outdoors the more you become comfortable with it and the mm-hmm. more it becomes your friend instead of your enemy. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people are afraid of the outdoors you know, and I think that it's uh, it's a shame because the outdoors is something that the wilderness um, happens to be uh, a place at peace. It's just changing.
1: Okay. There we go. What's this one?
0: Uh, this happens to be uh, another a swamp scape. Uh, let me see here. Um, it's got narrowmouth toads. That's that kind of sheep sound, that bat Those are narrowmouth toads. And it's got uh, upland chorus frogs and some um, gray tree frogs in there. And um, I hear a couple of uh, green frogs in there. Um, but this is just another soundscape uh, I've got two soundscapes on this one CD. That's mm-hmm. why there was that space there. Yeah.
1: You said that you were self-taught for a lot of this, and you went to school. At
0: Stephen F. Austin yeah. State University. In
1: Nacogdoches. uh uh-huh. um, And you got an archaeology degree. Yes. What was your focus? Primitive Primitive studies? tools primitive and primitive, primitive tools.
0: technologies.
1: Okay. Like the the drills that oh, you Oh, the showed. pump drill. Yeah, yeah, those were so cool.
0: That, I got the idea from that from a, a photograph of a Navajo silversmith that was taken back in the 1880s, the late 1880s. And he's just sitting there with a pump drill huh. uh, because a lot of the Navajo did not have electricity. So they used a lot of... Um, technology that didn't require electricity and the pump drill was one of those and uh, they just took replaced the stone for steel and um so that they could do different things in it but uh uh it's a neat thing you know no electricity works all the time don't have to worry about paying the electric bill or anything (laughs) like that the one thing that i would um Say that I uh, rely the most on modern technology is a tent.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes.
0: Um, everything else, the fires and stuff. I a lot of times when I've gone camping, I've used friction fire. I actually made a stone axe one time because I forgot a steel axe and huh. um, I didn't bring that with me. But uh, I actually chipped one out and uh, saved myself uh, from a cold night by. Yeah. Able, <laughs> Uh, Chipping some stone and making an axe and hafting it together and having some uh, parachute cord and tied it all together and was able to chop some wood up and have a nice fire. It's
1: pretty handy. Yeah. We went camping, I want to say I was 16, so either 90, I want to say 97, 96 or 97, um, we went to Earthnack, which oh, is a yes, Stone in Age, Colorado. uh-huh, in Boulder, a Stone Age living skills camp, and we were mm-hmm. there for a week, a week. week. was, I want to say that was the first time I had gone camping that long, but I'm sure that my parents took me camping longer, and I just didn't have a scale of time back then, yeah. um, and I'm pretty sure you showed, uh, friction fires, and... This I was, did a little
0: bit of Friction Fire yeah. showing there.
1: I think that was my first um, understanding that <laughs> there were other people in the world that, that were. That did strange things. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, my mom was interested in it, but I was just like, what is all of this stuff that you're doing?
0: <laughs> What's it all about? Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and they had, I think there was someone that had a didgeridoo that they taught yes. how to play.
0: And I think you made a didgeridoo out of a piece of PVC pipe.
1: I did, yeah. I did do that there. You Uh, still have that? I don't know. Probably back at my brother's house in the garage somewhere, I'm sure. Because I
0: still have the didgeridoo that I got from the guys. that They uh, took a a dead aspen and found a way that they could bore a hole just like an insect would. And I created a... a uh, Aspen didgeridoo, and it's really nice. I, oh, cool. I still play it once in a while, but not near enough. I think my I mom just...
1: bought me one when I got back, and I played it for like a month. Oh. And then I just set it somewhere.
0: It's nice to be around a lot of other people with a didgeridoo because it just kind of um, creates an ambiance, and then everybody starts getting into the drones. Yeah. And the, and the different sound making and stuff like that. When you have several of them together, it really sounds neat.
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, there was a lot of plant identification Mm -hmm. at the camp where someone would go and lead the group teaching different plants that are edible or medicinal. And I think she even taught, if it was a she, my memory says it's a she. Um, Yes,
0: I think you're right. They taught how to make the medicinal, the salves, salves and the And the different tinctures and stuff like that. Uh Yeah,
1: I'm I'm pretty sure my mom kept those for a very long time. And I I just liked the idea that everyone was so resourceful up there. Like if someone was injured, you know, they're like, hey, try this plant. It's a village. Yeah. Everyone is just there to help each other. And... I can't remember if it was the time that we went or the second year that I went, but someone had a goat that they brought and like showed how to, um, like drain the blood out and then like cook oh, it. that was, was the that first, first one. First, mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, was a veg- sheep. It, was, it oh. was a sheep. See, I didn't need it because I was vegetarian, but
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was a, it was a sheep
1: uh-huh. and,
0: um, okay. they, uh, they butchered it and showed how to do that. And then, uh, um, they uh, cooked it in an earth oven, uh-huh, uh-huh. and um, they didn't have very good plants to uh, layer and put around the, the meat and stuff like that, because after it got cooked, it tasted kind of grassy. Okay. <laughs> right. It wasn't the best in the world, but, you know, in a pinch, it was cooked meat, and it was it was delicious, you know, other than the taste of the grass, and, mm-hmm. and that's... Uh, one of the things, like we were talking about, the, uh, the Notch, and um, it's connected to the, uh, the earth ovens that the lower Pecos people had. And uh, they cooked lechuguilla and soto in earth ovens, but they used uh, prickly pear cactus and the leaves off of the, uh, the plants themselves and covered it and then put uh, dirt over top of it and cooked it for uh, about 36 hours.
1: So an earth oven, you are explaining to me, and I guess I hadn't seen an earth oven, if that's what they used up in Boulder. Yeah. It's basically a hole in the ground. And then you put rocks,
0: well, you, you, you put you, the meat put, or
1: whatever in the hole.
0: Right. But you got to build a fire first. Okay. You you dig a hole, and then you get wood, and then you place stones in between the wood, and then you light the, the wood on fire uh-huh. uh, using the friction fire, of course. Yeah. And then once it's start going, um, the flames come up into the rocks instead of being down at the bottom. So having them interspersed between the the different uh, pieces of wood allows the rocks to get up a high temperature. Sometimes you can get up to 1100 degrees Fahrenheit. And um, as we looked at a piece of phospholiferous limestone That's mm-hmm. a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> um, its natural state is a yellow color, mm-hmm. and then when it's fired up to uh, 1,100 degrees Fahrenheit, it turns pink.
1: Yeah, that's and really
0: cool. And that's very diagnostic of finding places where the lower Pecos people were building earth ovens is when you see that pink limestone with the fossils in it, you know that it was used in an earth oven. So it's very... Um, Like I said diagnostic of determining whether this was a a used place for an earth oven or not.
1: Mm -hmm. What I find so interesting about all of this is that you are kind of like always assessing your environment of either edible plants, or possible tools or
0: <laughs> like your bamboo <laughs> yeah yeah we walk past my
1: clumping bamboo and you're like that would make a good atlatl yeah and i think that that is um a certain type of creativity
0: where oh, yes, you're definitely. you're
1: assessing your environment to make things or use it or eat it or you know or, or you're what just people... aware of it yeah you're aware
0: of your environment and what's in it and uh you know, what's useful and what's not useful, or right. maybe something that you might need later on, and you say, oh, I remember back such and such place, there was uh, um, this particular plant that was growing there. You may not need it today, but maybe tomorrow, or the day after you might need it, but you know where that is, because uh, I believe that people in uh, prehistoric times had a good sense of uh, of where their are um, surroundings were. I mean, they knew where the trails were, they knew where plants were. They just, they knew their geography hmm. real well, because a lot of times they did travel uh, from one from one place to another, as they used a lot of materials and stuff, they may move to another spot and allow the other location to kind of grow back. And um, then they go to a new location and then harvest the plants. Huh. Um, that's where you get the name Hunter and Gatherers um, because they hunt and gather in different locations.
1: But they would move their campsite yeah. to actually do that. They didn't keep the same campsite and then go gather and then come back. To Sometimes
0: they did, they did that too. Hmm. But then once um, things played out, um, you know, you can only go so far yeah. and hunt and gather. And then they would just move on to another place Um, and also too moving from one place to another is a seasonal movement also because of the different plants that are in fruit or um, they let's say for instance um, in the lower pecos uh, because i know that so well if i was living out there and i knew it was fall and the bersimmons were coming i'd move to where those plants were. If it was close enough that I could go back to my camp, I would stay there. But if I had to move to a different area because I um, got all the fruit and stuff from that particular area, then I'd move to a new area and collect.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And so the hunting part you were saying the rabbit sticks that you showed yes. us I say us because that's when Ansley and Oh yeah, <laughs> her neighbor buddy were over. Um can you talk about rabbit sticks cuz I didn't I was not familiar with these.
0: Well, rabbit sticks were um, used by uh, in rabbit clubs. Uh, the difference between a rabbit stick and a rabbit club is a rabbit stick is a flat piece of wood and a rabbit club is like a stick with a, a a thick handle and then a big uh, uh, portion at the end,
1: mm-hmm. kind of like a bat, but shorter and stockier. Yeah,
0: I guess it kind of like a bat or like a club.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. a
0: food club, all you can eat. No, you can eat. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, they're both thrown sidearm, okay? And the rabbit clubs were used in the east because there was lots of trees and stuff, and if a rabbit club hits a tree, it just bounces off. Whereas a rabbit stick being flat mm-hmm. and about, um, oh, two and a half, three feet long, um, if it hits a tree or a rock or something like that, it's gonna tend to have a break in it because oh. it's it's not strong enough to take the blow. And so out in the desert areas where, there, where it's flat, and open spots and stuff and not like a forested areas. The rabbit stick that the lower Pecos people used was uh, very helpful in dispatching um, jackrabbits mainly. Uh, Mm. They have a lot of jackrabbits out there and they're kind of dumb to a certain degree because they'll just sit there and make a really easy target to hit. Have you ever
1: used one on a rabbit?
0: No, I haven't. I never have.
1: This is a theoretical rabbit stick in club yeah okay I mean
0: they're they're designed after the original ones from museum exhibits that okay. I've gone to and and looked at books and researched and stuff but I have used them in competition mm-hmm. uh, at Seminole Canyon uh, State Park they had a thing called the uh, Archeo Olympics and they had friction fire rabbit sticks at atlatls and um, I think that was it it was just those three things. that Did you they had.
1: sweep them all?
0: Uh, I did one year with my rabbit club nice. um, uh, that I showed you, the big hefty one uh-huh. that's kind of rounded and stuff. It's made out of uh, an acacia wood, which uh-huh. is a real heavy, dense wood. And it just has a nice feel to it. And uh, I um, got a couple of awards for that, uh, nice. being the best uh, thrower and the most accurate.
1: What was the target?
0: Um, it was, uh, some laundry detergent jugs. Oh, okay. <laughs> filled with some sawdust and stuff. So when you hit them, they didn't go flying off right. into the canyon.
1: And so to use one of these rabbit sticks or clubs to kill a rabbit, it was to get the rabbit meat and then to get the fur. And so you had a little bit of fur as an example.
0: Right. It's a, it's a robe I made, uh, uh-huh. 35 years ago, and it's not in good condition now. (laughs) It's almost like an artifact you'd find in one of the shelter caves. But uh, yeah, they would use the rabbit fur um, to make uh, cloaks and clothing and stuff like that, because it's really warm in the winter, and I'm sure these people were used to the colder temperatures much more than we are now today, but um, having a nice uh, rabbit fur blanket would just be a real treat to mm-hmm. have that on a cold night.
1: And you said that they even wove them. Wove
0: it into nets so that the fur would be on the outside and the inside, which is very interesting. Um, because of the dry shelter caves, they've been able to find uh, artifacts like this and being able to determine that these were uh, garments that people were using. And it's just its just fascinating what these people were doing. Their technology and their understanding of the world that they live in was just fascinating to me. Yeah. And because they just, they did so much with so little.
1: You had a little leather bag of tools that... Oh, my
0: hunting pouch.
1: Yeah, that um, prehistoric people would take around um, and... There was like a sewing kit, a prehistoric sewing kit, um, and uh, some needles made out of bone. Mm -hmm. So much stuff was made out of bone, like either bone or stone,
0: right, or wood, or wood. But Uh, the wood, unless it's in a dry shelter cave, the wood's gonna uh, disappear, whereas the bone and stone will last a lot longer in the soil depending on the pH of the soil like oh
1: like for a dig right the, the wood would break down by the time it would be found unless it was right. fossilized or something right right okay gotcha yeah I thought it was really interesting I hadn't thought of how they would be sewing fabric together
0: well that's how they got that uh, blanket that I made yeah. it was sewed with a bone um needle in uh artificial sinew i don't have a lot of real sinew because it's kind of hard to get but the uh, um artificial sinew works real 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 nice you can split it into small pieces just it's just like real sinew Hmm. except it's made out of nylon though
1: and then i guess it was a different kind of bone that would scrape like a um like a yucca or something like that
0: to get the fiber yes yes the uh um uh Flake tools is what they're called. And I use that to scrape the uh, uh, material off of the yucca leaves to make uh, yucca fibers and and take those fibers and then twist them into uh, cordage.
1: Yes. Okay. And then you could also sew with that if you wanted to? You could. Or wrap tools with it? Wrap
0: tools with it. I mean, it just, the cordage was a universal string that we have Today, today... Most uh, people use paracord, Uh which has uh, a sheath on it, and then it has a bunch of little uh, uh, strings on the the inside of it. So you can use it in a number of different ways. And and, uh, cordage was just like that. Depending on what it was made out of, you can make cordage out of bark. You can make it out of um, uh, dogbane, the outer bark of it. And um, my favorite is the, uh, the yucca cordage because it's pretty strong stuff.
1: You said it could also be made into like a paintbrush.
0: And oh, yeah. You can use the fibers of like the lechuguilla um, and, and, um, and the yucca to make paintbrushes.
1: And is that how um, Paleo-Indians would paint? On the rock walls?
0: Sometimes they used paint brushes. Other times they used uh, crayons that they made. Uh, They would take the deer fat um, or the bone marrow from the the deer and they would mix it with, uh, and this is in the lower Pecos and other places where uh, uh, yucca grows because yucca works as an emulsifier uh, with the fat, and then you put in the pigment and then mix it up. Uh-huh. And then you've got a paint that you can use um, to um, um, paint pebbles or do uh, murals in a, in a rock shelter and stuff. And a crayon, I'm not sure how they made the crayons, but they did have crayons because there is evidence of the crayon marks as opposed to... Like a, a brush stroke? A
1: brush stroke. okay. Oh, I had no idea they used crayons.
0: I think it was Crayola brand.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's where it started. <laughs> Is there anything that we haven't covered of like the many boxes you brought <laughs> that you'd like to talk about that we haven't yet?
0: Well, we looked at some bone knives oh, yeah. uh, that were made out of the ribs um, of animals. And um, the uh, bison had a nice sized rib And uh, the Plains Indians would make uh, bone uh, knives out of the ribs. They would just kind of cut part of it and then just scrape it. uh, I'm not sure exactly how they went about it and did it. I used uh, some metal scrapers and some stone scrapers also. I found... um, a lot of times when I use metal tools because I didn't know what they used before.
1: Yeah.
0: I figured, okay, well, this is what this does. If I use this particular material, a stone or something like that, it would work better quite often than the uh, steel material. The stone would? Yes, it would. Really? Until it got dull. I okay. And then you'd have to get another piece. What All kind right? of stone? Uh, chert. Okay. And I say chert because most people... Uh, look at the material and call it flint but flint is um, kind of synonymous with the word chert they're both the same material They're it's a silica okay.
1: um, and is flint napping that's making things like arrowheads right
0: or projectile points or
1: projectile points um, and then isn't there like a flint and a gun yes
0: gun flints okay is uh-huh. it the
1: same it's chert it's yes So, do you use flint to start fires or
0: friction fires? Um, Not friction fires, but you use flint and steel. Um, There's a steel striker, Uh and then you take the, uh, uh, you use char cloth. And char cloth is uh, nothing but um, uh, mostly what I use is. Old uh, cotton T-shirts, 100% cotton. Can't use synthetic stuff. Okay. 100% cotton, and put it in a a steel container, a small container, and uh, it has a little hole in the top. And you put that on a fire, and you burn the the material, the cloth inside there, without oxygen, because the heat causes the uh, material to start smoking. Uh And then it gets hotter and hotter and it burns the material without catching on fire. And this is Uh the way you get carbon. And flint and steel uh, uh, relies on having this carbon material that you take the steel striker and then you have uh, your piece of stone with the uh, carbon material on top. And then you take the striker and you come down on top of it and it cuts a piece of uh, the steel off. And for a split second, that spark is about 450 degrees Fahrenheit, or a little hotter sometimes, depending (sighs) on the material that it's made out of. But it's hot enough that when it hits the carbon cloth, it causes it to become a huge ember, and it's hot. It will burn for a long time. And that's the way the early explorers were doing their fires by flint and steel. Okay. It was done for a long time. And then when they ran out of flint, they went to uh, friction fires. <laughs> okay, they just did what everybody else was doing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, and you showed me a couple of knives that go around oh, your wrist. Oh, cattail knives. Yes, yeah. yes.
0: Uh, that's made out of the scapula of a deer. And you um, cut it up into a, like a long blade and then the blade has serrations in the end of it and then you can take that and um, there's a string attached to it, a piece of leather um, if you may, and um, take that and then you can cut the cattails and then drop it and it hangs on the, the little attachment, the little cordage that you have made there and then you can take the cattails and set them on the side. And then you don't have to look for your cattail knife again because it's right there next to your hand.
1: It's like a Wii remote. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. attached to your wrist so you don't it. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, those are really cool. And then you don't have to, like, put them in your pocket or whatever. Oh, did we... Now we get to listen to the ambiance of the Plains Passover. Oh, no. or
0: unless you play it again.
1: Alright, let's start it over. Alright, get ready for more frogs.
0: I'm riveting.
1: Yeah. It is riveting. <laughs> um okay, is there anything else? Uh, There's so much stuff you no. brought to like remember <laughs> all of the things. Um and I guess what is the, is there a creative overlap that, like a general creative overlap that you want to talk about? like?
0: Well, all of the stuff is, um, I mean, I consider myself a, an experimental archaeologist and a master naturalist. And I took a course from Texas Parks and Wildlife and um, became a master naturalist, which was really not much for me because I already knew quite a bit, and there were a few new things that I didn't know.
1: And you probably taught them stuff while you were there well, taking I the did. course. Well,
0: I, I did. I did. Um, I for the uh, East Texas chapter of the Master Naturalist, I teach the archaeology portion of their program, and it includes uh, all of a lot of the stuff that I showed you today. I showed them um, just to give them an idea of what you know people did as the real naturalist, you know. Right. I mean, the, the original naturalist, I should say. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: and um, it just opens up a, a whole new uh, realm of, of thought because they get to touch things and see things. And as a m- museums go, they're really neat, but they're stagnant. And um, a lot of kids want to touch the things and stuff. Adults, too. Yeah. And if you touch something and hear about it and see it, it makes a bigger impression on you than just seeing something in the, um, in the window. For me, um, when I went to museums and I saw neat stuff in the windows, I wanted to make one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't necessarily want to touch it or anything like that, but uh, I just wanted to go out and replicate it, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's what I've done, is I've studied through museums, collections, and the museums uh, that they have things on exhibits, and through books um, that have different things on nature and uh, primitive technology. And um, I go occasionally, uh, not as much as I used to do, uh, like what we went to, the EarthNAC primitive technology gatherings. Yep. And uh, I learn things from people and people learn things from me. It's, yeah. a, it's like a small village coming together as a reunion. You know, and everybody shares their technology and their stories and stuff like that. And uh, it's a real, um, it's a real neat feeling to be in in one of those primitive technology gatherings because most people that come to them are really um, nice people, gentle people. And um, they uh, have an interest in the technology of the past. And that's what kind of brings them together is that that, uh, yearning for that, The past, you know, when people did things with simpler times and simpler materials and stuff. I mean, we got so many technologies today that it's just, it's like we've lived beyond our technology. And when you go back into looking at uh, primitive technology, you have a finite amount of resources. And within those finite uh, amounts of resources, there's a lot of things that can be done if you're creative and that's the creative thinking Mm -hmm. that I think people like to have is, is be able to create something that somebody did in the past and make it work for you. You know, it just connects us to a time and place, um, that is no longer around anymore, but it's, it's becoming more popular now that a lot of, um, shows on Survivor.
1: Oh, sure.
0: Um, I think the show Survivor is kind of interesting. It's, It's not real survival. It's more of a game, a game show. Um, Less
1: gentle people there. Yeah,
0: Yeah, they're out to make a million dollars. Yeah,
1: cutthroat. (laughs) Yeah. Are there any resources online?
0: Oh, yes. There is one good resource that uh, in Texas is is called uh, Texas Beyond History. And they have um, a map and there's all kinds of... uh, prehistoric, historic uh, sites listed on there, and they have good information and stuff like that. Uh, A good friend of mine, Steve Black, or Dr. Black, um, I know him as Steve, (laughs) um, he and another uh, woman created uh, Texas Beyond History. Okay. And it's a real good resource for teachers. It has uh, all kinds of... uh, um, lesson plans in it and there's also oh. a, a critter called Dr. Dirt and you can ask him questions and uh, he'll answer them online for hmm. you uh, but it's a really neat site and I don't think people utilize it enough
1: yeah I will put a link to it on the blog post okay um, do you have any shameless plugs that you like are you Uh, doing any um outreach or courses coming up
0: um yes but they're all in east
1: texas (laughs) (laughs) what's coming up for you
0: um well this uh friend of mine who he's kind of like my apprentice he's uh starting a school the primitive um primitive awareness school i think is the name of it he just recently got it going Um, I'm going to be helping him teach classes and then um, I'm going to be doing a program down at Cattle Mounds at their new uh, new uh, and
1: improved uh,
0: temporary uh, museum site on um, let's see the spring I do uh, uh, primitive tools and friction fire uh, and then in the fall I do primitive tools and atlatls okay. and talk mainly about the, the hunting technologies and in the, the spring I do one, uh, I'm just now in the um, mode of trying to pick what date I want to do this program there. Okay. But I do a lot of outreach programs at Cattle Mounds because they're a really nice place and good people. And it's a good venue to do things like that because a lot of people come by, especially when we had the grass house there and people could see it from the road. You know, oh, it was 30 sure. foot tall and this is a huge thing. Um, and we're going to rebuild the grass house after the tornado um, that's coming up this summer. We're going to cut the grass and um, get some of the materials together in a get it built again so it's gonna rise
1: it will rise from the ashes uh do you know if the cattle mounds website has some of these classes listed
0: they will when i give them the information okay so <laughs> <laughs> if people are
1: interested in taking some courses with you um they can keep up on that website
0: Caddo mounds state historical site let's look
1: how do you spell caddo
0: C A D D O.
1: Okay. Um...
0: Yeah, there's the grass house over there.
1: Oh, cool! All right, I'm gonna download that. Did you help build
0: this? Yes, I did. Really? There was uh, about thirty people that worked on the grass house. That's cool. Um I was also teaching at the same time they were building it, so I got to see all different phases of it. But I helped uh, cut the grass and help uh, cut the trees that we used, pine trees, and then help do the thatching of it. And it's what they used was switchgrass. Uh-huh. And um, the switchgrass uh, took a huge amount. I mean, you would not believe how many trailers full of uh, grass we used to make that uh, house. But it was just an amazing uh, endeavor. From stories and and history, they were able to build uh, one of these grass houses in one day. What? It took us a couple of months. Yeah. (laughs) That's gathering the materials and stuff, but they had the materials nearby.
1: Okay, I think we are on the last question. If you were to give yourself a title for your creative identity, what would your title be? Bark Eater. Tell me about it.
0: Well bark eater is a name that I got from some of my army friends um, that I used to eat a lot of wild plants and stuff and they just said hey he's the bark eater (laughs) (laughs) and so that's kind of stuck with me a little bit. Um, It's just something I use every once in a while but it's it's the creative side of me Uh, and it I think it's a title that uh, encompasses all my uh, primitive technology and wild plants and everything, and it's just a—it's um, a neat name. I think I like it a lot. Yeah. And it it uh, very significant of who I am.
1: Yeah, you've had it for a long time. Yeah. When did you get it? When?
0: Oh, it was when I was in um, in the National Guard.
1: Okay.
0: Up at Fort Hood, I okay. was eating plants up there yeah. and stuff. <laughs> one of the guys up there said hey you know yeah that's the bark eater (laughs) i didn't know who they were talking about at first but you know they said yeah eat all those plants and everything just like i was showing you in your yard yeah
1: i was apologizing for my tall grass and you were like no
0: it's a feast yeah
1: (laughs) it's like okay i'm glad i didn't mow Um, well thank you Neil
0: well thank you Angelica
1: and thanks to our listeners I hope you'll stay tuned for more episodes of Chatty Crafties go to chattycrafties.com for photos, social media, links and more why don't you go ahead and follow Chatty Crafties on Instagram and Facebook while you're there this episode was hosted and produced by me Angelica Norton the calming intro and outro music was by berm and swale and the soundscapes throughout the episode were recorded by neil stilley please rate and review chatty crafties at apple podcasts or wherever you listen it really does help now if you're hankering to get outside around the fire you just made it's time to get your bones and go make some art